Hi, my name is Ali Vignon, coach of the Flyers. Hi, this is Travis Sanheim. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Neskinen. Hey, I'm Scott Lawton. Hi, I'm Joel Fairby. Hi, this is Bob Clark. And you're listening to Snow the Goalie. 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 Oh, yes! Ladies and gentlemen, a, a one-week hiatus. Fear not. The only Flyers podcast, another goalie. We're back. Well, I'm back. I don't know. I don't actually know what I'm doing today. Uh, I felt like it's been too long since there's been an episode that's gone out, and I thought, you know what? Maybe the smartest thing to do uh, is to just try to give people an update on Anthony. I figured maybe we could, um, I don't know, we could talk about what what's going on with the Flyers. So, um... That's kind of where we're at right now. What the heck? Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket. My God! My God, that's Welcome Anthony San Filippo's music! That's Anthony San Philly's music! Could it be? Could it be? And San COVID, he's back. Anthony, San Corona, he's back. My God, back from the dead. I swear, it's as if I'm seeing a ghost. It's like I'm seeing the Undertaker reincarnate. Where's Paul Bearer when you need him? Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. Join me in a an absolutely ripping, roaring round of applause. Anthony San Filippo. In our hearts, and now back on the Snow the Goalie podcast. How are you, pal? Hey, it's good to be back, Russ. It's really good to be back. I got to say, I wasn't expecting the big gong sound as my <laughs> as my entry <laughs> back into the show. But it was pretty funny, actually. Um, but no, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, look, I'm not 100% yet. It's going to be another probably three or four weeks before I really have all of my breathing back to normal. Um, but I feel pretty good uh, as far as day to day. I'm getting around, I'm moving about. Um, and I think, you know, next week uh, I'll actually be able to start attending uh, flyer stuff in person again. So um, yeah, it's great to be back. I'm so glad to have you back. I have to say, you know, we uh we we made jokes uh the first it's looking back on it uh, uh it's not that things didn't age well uh but they almost aged very poorly for me uh so we did a show on January sixth we did our training camp special we were really excited because we've been down at training camp and then we released that episode on the, on January sixth the next day you uh started coming down with what ended up being COVID. Uh, Colby and I did two shows. We took last week off. We had somebody reach out on Instagram yesterday who said, Hey, is Anthony okay? Like, do you have any updates? Cause I just kind of assume, I think usually that people either see the updates through Twitter or through Facebook, either through snow, the goalie or crossing broad. And I realized that like, there are some people who follow the show only on Instagram and I hadn't updated them. So they might've <laughs> thought that you were dead or that you were still in the hospital. So, um, I, I don't even know where to start. We're going to get into the flyers. I, I'll put a timestamp in the show description in case you want to skip this whole thing. If you don't care about Anthony, uh, you could just skip to the flyers talk. But 
I'd be remiss if we if we didn't at least catch up on a couple of the things uh, that happened. Obviously, yeah. anybody who listened to the episode that came out on was it the tenth? I think it was that was the one that uh, we had Travis Sanheim the twelfth. They heard that you were on there. You were asking some questions. You were out of breath, and well, things went downhill pretty quickly. I yeah, I know a lot of people. Day. It was the very yeah, next. I know day. that a lot of people read the uh, the story that you wrote over on CrossingBroad.com about your uh, battle with the coronavirus. Something that you and I had talked. I don't know how many times about in the past. Of like, if there's one person that I know that can't get COVID, that it's, I would be really worried about if they got me. it. It would be. It'd be you. And then you selfishly went out and got it and yeah. scared the hell out of everybody. Yeah. I mean, that first day, um, and look, I, I felt okay. The third, I mean, once I was in the hospital, um, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I didn't feel good that morning. Um, I was having, uh, I don't want to call them fainting spells cause I never actually passed out, out, but I was very dizzy. I couldn't focus on the room. Um, I couldn't move. I couldn't walk. I would have fallen over if I did. And I couldn't breathe. Um, and so that's why I got myself to the hospital. Once I was in the ER for about an hour, I felt okay. And yet, because my oxygen level was so low when I came into the, into the ER, I was in critical but stable condition. Um, <coughs> I wasn't about to die um, at that moment, thankfully, but the, the major concern was that if I didn't improve quickly, that I was gonna be put on a ventilator. And we all know what the successful outcomes, how low they were for COVID patients who were on ventilators. So that was the big concern. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, it, was a, well, it was a scary moment there for, 24 hours you and i haven't talked about this yet so i'm i'm gonna i might i might drop a little bit of knowledge on you so and, and i guess I'll, I'll tell people this too so in the time leading up to you getting hospitalized i said to you i think on multiple occasions you really need to get checked out you sound awful like you sound the worst i've ever heard somebody who isn't hospitalized like you you have to do something and you're thick-headed and you're a pain so you didn't do it but um, and also you didn't want to leave your son home alone. Like I get that. And he was, he was also positive. You went into that in the story as well. So I understand not wanting to leave your kid at home. Uh, and obviously, as you also outlined in the story, when you're positive, it's almost like you're a pariah, like a social pariah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea of somebody coming to, to even help your son, you know, I, I can understand if that was part of the, the logic. Um, so I hadn't heard from you. Um, I had gotten a picture a selfie from the hospital bed at some point. I think I said and, it to you the day I went into the hospital. And the next morning, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the next morning, I get an email from a person I do not know, and it's to me and to Kyle. My sister. And Kyle's not your sister. And no, my sister sent the email. Your sister sends the email. Now, I've never talked to your, to your sister. I'm sure she's a lovely woman but I had never previously had correspondence with her. I reached out to your kids the night that I knew you were in the hospital to see if they needed anything because I'm pretty much their unofficial uncle, even though two of them are pretty much like close to my age. But I, um, I had a moment where I was like, all right, you know, whatever is needed, whatever we can do from our distance, we want to do. And they didn't seem crazy worried. They didn't give the impression that things were horrific. 
The next morning I get this email. I'm sitting at my desk and your sister tells us that you were rushed in, that you were, I don't think she told us critical. She said that you were in the ICU. You were on, you were on 24 hour care. And I ha- I broke down at my desk. I, uh, I was lucky that it wasn't a day that I was doing like my normal teaching. I had a legitimate, like very sad, felt like I was losing somebody breakdown. I texted my wife and I said, Hey, he's, he's in ICU. And she called me and she was supposed to be teaching. And she called because she started crying. So then we're sitting there with like two blubbering idiots on the phone. (laughs) And I genuinely have not ever, and I've been lucky. The only people I've ever experienced having to lose are people who I expected to. Right. Never had, I luckily have never had one of those unexpected things. And that was, I think, the most gut-wrenching feeling and was knowing that there was nothing that anybody could do and that your kids couldn't be there to be with you. Uh, It was an absolutely horrible experience from the outside. And then eventually, um, you know, we put out the tweet because I didn't, I did not, well, we, we reached back out to your sister and we said, is it okay? Kyle's idea was let's put it out to people and try to send good juju his way. Let's try to get any kind of good thoughts in case he's by his phone. Let's try. And um, yeah, thanks. I didn't, you, I, you I, you, all you did was blow up my phone for five days. Well, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't want to say anything that was going too far. I didn't want people to know how serious it was because I didn't have it directly from you, your right. blessing. Um, and I was worried that people are just gonna be like, all right, he's, you know, he's probably in the ER. He'll, he'll get released. But I think people started to pick up and some of our colleagues started DMing about checking in on you. And I, I told them that this was a lot worse than it appeared on the timeline. And thankfully after some time, things started to progress. Um, I got mad. I will tell you, there was only one time I was mad at you in this whole thing. I had, um, I found out that you had texted back Rhea Hughes and you hadn't talked to me and you hadn't (laughs) texted me. And I was so mad. I was like, this guy, all it takes is a text. Just be like, I'm alive. I'd have, I'd have had a freaking celebration. I was going to do cartwheels. You don't want to see me do cartwheels, but I was close. Well, and here's then, the difference, Russ. What? I texted people who texted me. I thought you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> so I find this out and I was like, well, you know what? It's fine. At least he's sex. And then I thought, is he mad that I tweeted about this? Like, is he mad that I was trying to get people to send good vibes this way? Is he actually mad? Because I could see that. There is a scenario in which you'd have been like, that was my that was my story to tell. That was my personal blah, 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 blah. And I was going to be like, dude, your sister's. But eventually you texted back. And it was a few days until I felt like you were kind of back to being you. And I don't remember what the text was, but there there were a couple. And I was like, all right, he's yeah. he's pretty close to back. No, I was I was okay with it being put out there. I was overwhelmed by the response. Um, so many hundreds of people sent messages, whether it was through Twitter or Facebook or people who have my number who were just texting me. I remember waking up at one point because I was, I was there's a lot of fatigue that comes with COVID. So I was my sleep schedule still isn't 100 percent back to normal. Um, so I was sleeping at weird hours, and uh, I remember waking up one point, it was right around dinner time. And I looked at my phone and I had 107 texts, 107, which is crazy. 
right? And I was like, where did this all come from? But the point that you made, and I didn't even mention this in my 6,000 word epic um, about my experience with COVID, but the point that you make about the uncertainty from the outside is something that's very real. Um, I'm a strong-willed person, so I don't it didn't bother me that I was isolated like that for 11 days, that I couldn't see, see people uh, that I knew. I know that can be hard on some people um, and, and I feel bad for them, um, but the isolation didn't bother me so much, but I knew that it had a really negative impact on my family and friends because they couldn't really get an honest to goodness update about what was going on. My sister was in constant communication with my nurses, but they only tell you so much over the phone. And so my sister only had that to go on to share with people. Mm-hmm. So, and the thing that would get weird, and I did mention this in the story, is doctors would come in and see me on their rounds, which was usually early in the morning. And the docs were coming in and they were happy with my progress. Um, and everything was always positive. Every time I talked to a doctor, it was positive. So I would get excited by this and I would text everyone with this news. But the last update they got from the nurses was not this good news. And so after a while, my family started to think that I was BSing them, that I was just trying shocker. to that I was that you would do trying to force my way out of the hospital to come home. They didn't believe me. And I got to tell you, there were a lot of text exchanges and it wasn't just my family. I mean, Maria, my girlfriend, Maria, she was a, she was like her anxiety was off the charts, off the charts. Like, and they were all freaking out. Now, she works in a um, cancer center. And so she deals with patients all the time. And she was the same way. She's like, you're making this up. You're trying to get yourself out. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm really, really not. So it was, um, it's a unique thing, the the whole setup, because the people on the outside are so in the dark and that uncertainty and anxiety causes more issues than the, the patient themselves may be experiencing on the inside, you know? Yep. So, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it was a tough, it was a tough 11 days in that regard. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're out. I guess that's, that's really the end of the day thing. Yeah, uh, no, it's good to be out. It's good to be back home. I'll say that um, I'm glad that you're back because I got to do something last night that I had not gotten to do in all the time that you were in. I turned off a Flyers game. Um, and and we'll, we're going to get into that. Now, Now, hello, everybody who skipped over the let's care about Anthony Sanfilippo section <laughs> of the podcast, and let's talk about some Flyers hockey. So the, uh, the, the issues that I think you and I were worried about entering the season, and I think you and I had, had agreed on quite a few of them. And when Colby was on the show, he had agreed – uh, you know, with a number of them as well. They've reared their head. Now, there are many reasons that that this has happened. And since it's been a long time since you and I have done a show together, like, I don't know yeah. how much you, you, you mentioned that 
because you were in the hospital uh, and because you had the Rona that it was going to, uh, you know, cause you to be in and out of sleep. So I don't know how much you actually got to catch while you were in. I assume I watched every you. game. Yeah. Like this I is watched, not surprising. I watched every game and I didn't miss any of them. So there, there were things that were concerning and the Boston game that happened on Wednesday night, that first period. I mean, we had, we had the Shane Goss despair returns to 2019 form, as you called it. Um, prior to that had looked good. I think that we'll, we'll talk about ghost at some point, but, but I think he's, he's kind of stabilized a suspect defensive core for the most part. Um, but he had a bad moment. It was another one of those goals that can't go in. Um, that breakdown can't happen. Carter Hart has to track that puck. It's not, it's not indicative of a systemic issue with the team, but it's a bad look for it to happen. Was it 19 seconds, 12 seconds 12. in 12. 12, seconds. 12 seconds into the first period against a team that I think you and I had agreed going into the season was not the same Boston Bruins juggernaut that you're typically used to going up against that had lost. They're, they're top heavy. Yeah. They they're had lost top two, of, two of their top defensemen this off season um, in Chara and Krug. They, they are still going to be problematic. You can't spot them a goal that early in the game. And by the time I got done watching that first period, knowing that you were going to be there to write the game recap for this one, I said, you know what? I, I'm, I'm walking away from this because I don't want to waste my evening watching them make the same stupid mistakes. And by the way, I can't totally blame every single thing that is this team is going through on like as if the team is at full strength because they're not. So I turn it off and then I check in a little bit later and I see, oh, they're up 2-1. That's nice. I turn the game on. I see 3-1. I'm like, all right. I go back to my basement. I go back to playing a little bit of a little bit of Call of Duty, which I, you know, don't really enjoy all that much, but I do like playing with friends. Anyway, I go back and I'm like, all right, 3-1. They'll likely let in another goal, but they should be able to close this one out. And then the wheels fall off. And I want you to take it from there about everything that went wrong with this Flyers team getting out to a terrible start, getting themselves back in, getting up 3-1, and then just choking it away. Yeah, and the thing of it is, Russ, is that you can't, you know, we hear it's such a cliche thing when you hear players say you have to play 60 minutes. But in reality, you do, especially against good teams. Sometimes you can get away with, you know, a, a bad period or a bad period and a half against a weaker team and, and still survive. Look, they did it against the Devils, right? They, the 3-1 win against the Devils was an ugly game. They did not play well, but they're a superior team talent-wise, and they were able to, you know, pull off the win despite not playing to their best level. But when you play a team like Boston or a team like Washington, who's coming up, you, you can't do that. And, you know, the Flyers had that terrible start. First 11, 12 minutes of the game, they were awful, just awful. Boston was, it was a clinic. They couldn't, Flyers couldn't get out of their own end. Um, they stabilized in game. So give them credit for that. They figured it out in game and were able to stabilize. And then they were plucky enough to, you know, score the next three goals and take that 3-1 lead. And, and they're play, five on five, I thought Flyers played pretty good overall. Take that first, you know, 11, 12 minutes out of the mix. Five on five, they were pretty good in that entire game. But then they, they again, 
give up a two goal lead. And each time they do, it's for different reasons. And that's why I said this can be fixed, but it's not something that can just be fixed with a snap of the fingers. This is something that's going to take time to fix. They've now blown five two-goal leads in the last seven games, three of them in the third period. And this time they did it with a lack of discipline. They took three penalties in the final nine minutes, and Boston scored on each of those power plays. The penalty kill, which had been good the last four games that the Flyers had won, killing off 14 of 15, suddenly couldn't stop Boston. And that's not a surprise. Boston's power play is constantly among one of the best in, in the NHL. And um, But you, you think maybe you can kill one of them, right? They couldn't. Um, David Pasternak ends up with a hat trick and four points, and Patrice Bergeron scores the game winner uh, early in overtime. I think it was like 19 seconds into overtime. That's where um, my 19 came from. Yeah, yeah. off a pass from Pasternak. Uh, to, so he ends up with four points as well. He had three assists. Um, and it's just a bad loss. And the thing of it was – if you're following only on Twitter, if you weren't watching the game like you, if you're just sitting there playing Call of Duty and looking at your Twitter handle um, or your Twitter feed uh, every so often, you would think that these penalties that the Flyers had called against them were awful calls, that the referees were costing the Flyers the game. Um, not, And I didn't even mention in the story that in between these three penalties, they also called a penalty on the Bruins and the Flyers power play didn't do anything. It was a terrible, terrible power play. Um, did nothing to, to, you know, bolster their lead at that point. But, um, Hey, you missed the, uh, you missed the part where the, uh, the Bruins slipped cash to the refs. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of, a lot of that going on. Well, my favorite, that was my favorite again. tweet. And I used in my story was the guy who suggested there was collusion. Um, <laughs> between the NHL, the refs, and the Bruins. Um, but uh, the reality is, is that each one of those penalties was a penalty. They were, each one was not a good penalty, um, especially Scott Lawton's with seven seconds to go in regulation. It was lazy. It was a sign of frustration um, because the Bruins had just tied it. Uh, he doesn't skate. And, you know, an AV called him out on it. Uh, in his post-game press conference. So those things cannot happen. You know, and AV says, we'll learn from this. Well, you, you should know better. You're, you're, you're a team that's, that's competing to win this division and potentially be a team that could represent the Eastern, well, I don't even know if it's the Eastern, could represent somebody in the Stanley Cup final. Um, and, uh, and you can't have those things take place. And so this, this loss is not because of referees. It's not because the Flyers got screwed. This loss is completely on the players for, you know, again, blowing a two-goal lead. Now, you, they blew two-goal leads against the Islanders twice and still won in overtime, yep. right? But you can't go to that well too many times, you, especially against the Boston team. And you really can't do it if you don't have the opportunity to play three-on-three, three, which the Flyers are really good at under Elaine Vigneault uh, in the three-on-three three overtime, if you can't have a three-on-three three situation, you really can't go to overtime if you're going to be shorthanded. Um, that really doesn't favor the Flyers at all. And lo and behold, guess what? Boston leapfrogs you in the standings. And you may think, oh, it's only 11 games in. But in a 56-game season, that's an important point lost. 
and an important point gained by an, a, an opponent. That's a two-point swing. Um, that shouldn't happen. The Flyers should have won that game in regulation and it should have had a three-point lead over the Bruins. Now, instead, they're tied. And that's, that's not a good thing. Let me devil's advocate that, though. While it is a lost point, they could have just as easily closed up shop after how poorly the first half or so of that first period went. Sure. They could have tucked their tail between their legs and they could have walked away with nothing. So I understand what you're saying because they blew a two-goal lead, but they did at least come away with something. I'd also like to defend myself very quickly. The reason I didn't watch the game is because we were still waiting on our family's COVID test results because we got exposed last week. And that's why I haven't been down doing the games this week. And it was just kind of like the idea of the uncertainty of waiting for that because we have three kids and one's a baby. You don't want to have that. So I'm like, I'm like stressed out as is, or I was at that point. We got them back today. We're negative. We're good. But that kind of uncertainty, that kind of overall just fear Right. And then turning this game on and seeing it in the first, it's the first time I've turned off a Flyers game in, I don't know, three, four years. Um, it's really good, makes for good pod, though, that we welcomed all the folks in who skipped over your heartfelt story and then heard one half of the show say, eh, watch the rest of it. Watch the highlights <laughs> for the rest. But I had a reason. Yeah. Um, so I, I, look, I, I, here's the thing about this team. And that's what I think this is what makes everybody so frustrated. You make a great point in the sense that they're resilient. You know, yeah. they find a way, even when they're not playing well, they find a way to stay in a game and give themselves a chance to not only just win it, but if not win it, at least earn a point in the standings. So you got to give them credit for that. There's no question. But that's what, and that's a sign of a good team because it shows you they have the talent, they can stay in these games. They're seven, two, and two. That's a very good start over an 11 game season over the first 11 games of a season. But if you watch the games, every game and you look at it, you say to yourself, they cannot sustain this. There's no way you can play night in and night out like this and expect this outcome to happen as often as it does. And I think that that's what last night's game really highlights is because they played, they played like this against the Islanders two games and were able to win both in overtime, right? And you sit there and say, how did they do it, right? They pulled a, pulled a rabbit out of the hat again. Um, but last night is an example of you can't keep doing the same thing and have it work in your favor. Eventually, it's going to come back against you. And it came back against them against Boston. So now you sit there and say, maybe this is the wake-up call that this team needs. And maybe now they'll start playing the right way over the course of a 60 minute game and not just sit there and, you know, take us all on this wild ride for uh, every night that they play a hockey game. So I want to be nice because I don't want to have some of the the fine folks on Twitter who get very upset whenever you're negative about things. Um, I I just don't want to deal with them right now, but there, there comes a time where like this team has to put on the big boy pants. And like, I, by the way, I use the expression, Long before Elaine Vigneault used it last year during the playoffs. But I digress. They have to put the big boy pants on. Like, how many times do we need to watch this team and have that same conversation about, you got to play 60 minutes. You have a veteran coaching staff. Prior to that, you had a not-so-veteran coaching staff. You've had, this is where... Now, let me, let me take a moment because I don't, want you to, I don't want the consternation that comes with mentioning the veteran core on this team with you, okay? It's also fitting that you came back to life when Claude Giroux 
and Jake Borachek and James Van Riemsdyk started putting pucks on the net or in the net. Okay. There is an issue that is systemic with this team and has been for years. When is the last time, Anthony, that you could say a Philadelphia Flyers team played full 60 minutes or close to it for longer than 20 games? You could maybe point to last year prior to the prior to the shutdown of the league in March. They played really well. Were there games where they had these mental lapses? Yes, there were. Were there games that we came on and we did a podcast or we did the press row show and we said, man, if this team doesn't start playing more than just 40 minutes in the game, it's going to come back to bite them. Their talent was able to overcome it. But, but, but aside from that, it was a great run. And I still think that it was above. It was just like a team that was playing really hot. It was probably playing above their talent level at that time. At what point do we say there's something that's just like fundamentally flawed about the team? Now, the one big thing, the massive thing that cannot be overstated is that loss of Sean Couturier. Colby and I talked about this. You and I have not had a, a chance to. Right. But the, the cascade effect that that has, the domino effect of him not being there, not being available as a legitimate shutdown center who you could mark on anyone who can essentially like zone read things, get into passing lanes, cause mayhem and shut down the opposing team's top line. When you don't have that, it puts all that much more pressure on your defense. It puts that much more pressure on your young netminder. That can't be overstated. But this can't keep happening. And there are some people on Twitter, especially, who sit back and say, hey, you just have to go by what the record is. And they have a great record. So something has to be working. It can't be lucky if they keep winning. It's kind of a dumb way to look at it. Well, it's good a, teams, it's a, good it's teams a, create their own luck. It's a flawed way to look at it. Yeah, good because teams create it's, their own luck. It's, it's ignoring evidence that you have in front of you that shows there are flaws with this team. It doesn't mean they're a bad team. I, we both said that they had a chance to win the East Division. They still do. Getting Sean Couturier back in seven-ish days, seven or eight now, I think, based on the, the Fletcher yeah. timeline potentially. Like, If he's back, if he's at full health or close to it, that's a major, major addition back to this lineup and it will fix a lot of errors. It'll fix a lot of problems with this team getting Shane Goss to spare back. Oddly enough, a guy who was your sixth or seventh defenseman a season ago, him coming in on the top pair, oddly enough, more or less stabilizes a defensive core that still has a mess in, in their third pairing. But like at some point you have to start to question the mentality of some of the guys on the team. If this continues to be an issue, because we saw these issues with Craig Berube we saw these issues with Dave Haxtall. We saw these issues, although you can kind of throw this time out, but like with Scott Gordon, we're seeing them with Elaine Vigneault. We saw them last year in stretches. We're seeing them again this year. At some point, you kind of go, all right, if you keep changing the guy who's in charge, if you keep changing that voice and the same problems keep happening, what do you do? If you're Chuck Fletcher, what do you do? You can't really shake things up all that much, can you? So, so what's so the plan? I think the big frustration uh, for the coaching staff this year is that um, the the uh, you already mentioned how well the veteran guys are playing offensively, right? But if you look at their possession numbers, they're way the hell down yeah. all, across the board. So they're producing, 
but they're not managing the puck as well as they used to. So it's a conundrum. Do you force them to concentrate more on their defensive game and take away some of the offensive production? Or do you leave this alone knowing Couturier will be back, which will help possession numbers, obviously, across the board? Um, and face-off numbers. <laughs> and face-off numbers, which are bad. Um, and the penalty kill, which, is, which struggled last night. And, and then, you know, just kind of weather this storm and hope that once he returns, that kind of stabilizes things and that you now have your core players putting up the leading the way offensively, putting up the numbers that you would expect them to put up and improve your game in your own end. Um, it's, it's a tough spot to be in because I'm sure they want, I mean, I, and I think Jeru's played well defensively. He's not been, you know, lights out, sulky trophy type defense, defense. But for Claude Giroux, I think he's played pretty solid defensively. Yeah. Voracek has not played great defensively. Van Riemsdyk's been eh, okay defensively. Hayes has been eh, defensively, right? They need these guys to do a little bit more in their end. But again, like I said, they're being also asked to carry the load offensively because your bottom six, as well as they're playing, are not putting the puck in the net, right? So, you know, you know, yeah, okay, Farabee had the hat trick. But for the Farabee's most part... had really big offensive explosions and then has been more or less he's, invisible he's kinda, in other he's, games. He's kind of hit or miss, right? It's kind of indicative of a young player. Like, yeah, which is fine. Can't he's, to shoulder, to he's still 20 load, years old, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, like I look at guys right now like... Patrick and Lindblom. And I know they're both coming back after long hiatuses um, from different types of maladies and injuries and, and the like. But neither one has been really productive in the offensive end. Um, I think Nolan Patrick stays to the outside a little bit too much along the wall. Um, I don't think he gets into the play enough. I, I think Lindblom is still trying to find his way um, physically, getting back to playing hockey the way it needs to be played. Um, and, and I think so that, so I think those are two, you know, and without Couturier, those are two guys that you need to kind of provide that secondary offense and they're not. So again, maybe your top players, are cheating a little bit offensively, you know, on breakouts and the like, trying to get up ice. And that's what's causing all the defensive turnovers. The forwards aren't coming back to, you know, getting deep enough in their own end to make it a 200-foot breakout um, and then through the neutral zone and then into the offensive zone. Because the Flyers aren't getting shots. They're getting outshot two to one. Um, they're, they're not getting <laughs> a lot of chances and yet they're still averaging three and a half goals a game. So if they could only generate more, they are a dangerous offensive team, but they have to do that. So the, the conundrum really lies in, you know, do you leave well enough alone because these guys are producing 
and and deal with the frustration of the the mistakes in your own end or do you force them to come back and and help out knowing that might impact the kind of offensive production that they're getting I, I think it's a tough thing for the Flyers coaching staff to deal with right now. Uh, ultimately, they're going to have to play better in their own end. But maybe, you know, you look at it and say, well, we've gotten off to a good start. We're 7-2-2. Two, and two. Maybe we can survive another three, four games until Couturier comes back, you know, playing this way, even though it's high risk, high reward. Or you could make a phone call to former guest on this podcast, Matt Niskanen. And beg and plead and pray. <laughs> I think and Chuck hope. has I think Chuck has eat, done eat pray love, eat pray love. And just hope that he comes. So let me th- he's not coming back. Um let's just imagine for a second, Anthony, that Matt Niskanen enjoys what he's doing right now. He enjoys the life that he's leading. And we get close to the playoffs and he gets that itch because some guys do. And there's like two weeks maybe three to ramp up to be in shape for the postseason. Do you think there's a scenario where Matt Niskanen comes back? No. I mean, I think that the, the Flyers were smart to not terminate the contract, to leave that door open, even if it's only open a crack for him to come back. But I believe Chuck, when he says Matt's enjoying retirement, that this is the way he wanted it. And even though that door stays open and he still stays in communication with him, that this doesn't seem like something that Matt wants to do. Now you get to the trade deadline in April. Maybe Matt Niskanen says, yeah, I can ramp it up for 15 games and do the playoffs. If you can't go out, if, if, the, if that trade option isn't out there, if there's not a player that you really want, maybe. So I would, but I would say the odds of it happening are like at this point, ten percent or lower. I mean, I really don't think it's, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean Chuck's not going to try. I mean, you sure. don't, you don't have constant communication. He says he talks to him pretty regularly, right? So you don't yeah. have that constant communication with a former player who is still under contract, if unless you really want him to come back. Um, and that's the thing. I mean. Gosta Spares played well last night, notwithstanding, um, since he's returned. The question is, can you afford to have games like last night where he's 2019 Shane Gosta Spare, especially if you're in the playoffs and he's on your top pair? Because when he has a bad game, Provorov has a bad game too. Provorov did not have a good game. Well, in, in fairness, if we want to say that Shane Gosta Spare has had a 2019 Shane Gossespierre game. Then we also have to point out the fact that Ivan Provorov has had 2018 Ivan Provorov games frequently this year, or at least through, you know, one and a half, two periods of games. Some people don't like to acknowledge that. People also don't like to acknowledge that Carter Hart isn't the second coming of the Messiah this early in his career. It's okay. We can still think that things are good and the players are going to continue to develop. The Provorov thing to me is, um, hmm, how many times did I say, over the offseason, that the biggest concern that I had once Niskanen retired is you need to replace that guy. Not because, yeah. not because Ivan Provorov is inept, but the problem was that the projection that most people had put out was Phil Myers next to him 
or Travis Sanheim next to him or get desperate and put Shane Gosses bear next to him. And I said, it I don't know how many times because I asked Provorov about it because I asked Chuck Fletcher about it because I asked Elaine Vigneault about it. When you don't have somebody that you know you can rely on, you start overthinking the game. And what we saw in a lot of the up and down play that Provorov had, yes, it was not all his fault. The Justin Braun pairing with him, total disaster. I think anybody could have seen that coming. But this coaching staff was resolute in their belief that they should not split up Phil Myers and Travis Sanheim. Well, here's and the it- thing. Well, here's the thing with that, Russ. I'm, I'm just going to stop you for a second. You could finish your point. Um, the one thing I will say is general managers, and I think that this is the case in other sports too, Some, you know, maybe not football as much because – you don't get a lot of trading in season in football, but maybe in you know baseball and basketball as well as hockey. General managers know, especially in salary cap luxury tax worlds, that you're going to go into a season and there's going to be a weak spot on your team. Just it's just the nature of you know the the, the financial situation, and that the hope is is that your team can play well enough to get you to that trade deadline when you can address the weakness that you have. And I think that the Flyers looked at it and said, there wasn't a defenseman that they really liked enough to commit to in the offseason to replace Niskanen. Because they were, first of all, A, it was unexpected. They weren't expecting the retirement. But that secondly, once that they knew that that was real, um, that there wasn't anybody there that they really felt could replace him and, and you know do so fiscally, um, in, in a smart fiscal manner. And they sit there and say, okay, well, let's get to the trade deadline. And if we're in the mix, which we should be, then we'll address it then. Now, if the trade deadline passes and they don't bring in a number two defenseman, then I think that you can sit there and say that this organization blew it. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not ready to, to criticize Chuck for doing it this way until it's a problem that is causing you to lose the playoffs. Um, so, but I, so I, I, you know, he still has, in my mind, he still has time to rectify it. Um, but he can't, he can't let that trade deadline pass. And this is your, this is your six going into the playoffs. You ain't making the Stanley cup this way. There's an easy counter to that. This team spent $3 million on Eric Gustafson. Now, my, th- my thought is, and I think I said this at the time, was you don't know what you were going to get from Shane Gostisbehere. He had had another knee surgery, and you wanted to have that offensive defenseman potential. You wanted to have somebody that could be a high-ceiling guy. Gustafson was a 63-point defenseman two years ago. Uh, the thought was that he could fill in. He could be your power play quarterback on one of the two units, and that maybe his contributions on special teams would offset some of the defensive lapses that he could have at five on five. Seriously, it's a carbon copy of everything that you would say about Shane Goss's bear. You have two of them now. Um, would you like a third and Tony D'Angelo? I'm just kidding. Um, there's a guy that theoretically could have worked. The speed was an issue, but he's not having a bad year. And he's making under $800,000 a year. And he's a steady veteran defenseman who sure would have looked a lot better with this team than without him. Zidane Chara is having an okay year. Yeah. It's not perfect. He's averaging just over 20 minutes a game for the, uh, the caps. He's, 
he's on a dirt cheap, dirt cheap deal. You're talking about a guy that brings Stanley Cup experience. You're talking about a guy that you probably don't want to pair with Ivan Provorov on that top pairing, all things considered, but a guy that you definitely could have relied on a lot more and would have brought a lot in terms of winning culture and accountability to your team, some of which it has been argued might be lacking. Some of the urgency issues that might be lacking, some of that loss of detail that causes you to not have these 60-minute games. So... That to me was the one move in the offseason that I didn't blame Chuck for saying Gustafson could be the ghost replacement. We thought that there was a chance that that was going to mean they were going to cut one and a half million off the books. That kind of indicated that maybe Shane Gossespierre was going to be on his way out this offseason. And that's how you were going to replace him. Fine. But like that guy was there. Chara was still there. And to me, like that's the miss. And it's not a guarantee that there had been any conversation. It's not, it doesn't mean that the Flyers blew it, that Chara wanted to come to Philadelphia. He wanted to don the orange and black. Like there has to be a desire on the player's part. And maybe there wasn't. I don't know if those conversations were had, but just conceptually in terms of team fit, in terms of what he could have brought to the table, that's a miss. Should the Flyers have prioritized trying to get Tory Krug? Would that have helped them? I think it probably would have, right? But yeah, you don't but... want to, you don't want to you don't want to spend that kind of money right on that position, especially given some of the guys that you have coming up uh, for in free agency, either unrestricted or restricted over the next two years. Plus you have the Seattle expansion issue where if you had signed Krug, you were probably going to expose one of either Sanheim or Myers in the expansion draft. So maybe that goes into part of this, but you're playing a whole lot of what ifs and we've said it already. Sean Couturier coming back is going to have a massive impact on this team overall. A lot of the deficiencies that this team has shown defensively in their own end are going to poof, disappear. Guys are going to get to slide back into their roles, back into their ice time expectations, back into the expected roles that they had in training camp. But like, I think we've now seen that this Flyers defense is one injury away from the bottom falling out in a much bigger and a much more um, devastating way to their hopes of winning a Stanley cup, or at least contending for a Stanley cup, then I think Chuck Fletcher or anybody in the organization would have wanted to believe could happen. Phil Myers and Shane Gostisbehere being out of your lineup for a bit should not send this team into the kind of tailspin that it did on ice. The results were fine, but if you watch the game and if you looked at what was happening, that should not be the thing that drives you into chaos. Your thoughts. Yeah, no, you're you're not you're not wrong there. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. We, we had uh, Chuck the other day in a press conference, um, kind of unexpectedly. We we didn't know why we were getting Chuck, and uh, he he said that, and I think it was like the kiss of death leading into last night. Um, he said, you know, Shane Gosses Bears played better than I expected. Well, what was your expectation? Like, like what was the expectation there? And there's no doubt that Gustafson was brought in as a replacement for Gostasbear. And they couldn't move him. They tried. They tried to trade Gostasbear. Teams were a little reluctant to take on that salary. In the flat cap. With the flat cap. Yeah. And so, so the Flyers were kind of stuck with him. Um, and they're giving him an opportunity. And, yeah, he, he had four games where he was pretty good. And then, you know, last night happened where he was a turnover machine. He was constantly icing the puck, just did not play well. 
Um, and yeah, obviously he wasn't on the ice a lot in the third period because he doesn't kill penalties really. Um, so you can't really blame him for the end, but it, it was just not a good game by Goss bear. And there was no offense being created. So again, if he's doing the things that he's good at and creating chances, making a good pass, you know, getting shots on goal, stuff like that. You can live with mistakes on a defensive end. You're not happy about it, but you can live with it. But if he's not creating, then you, those mistakes end up in the spotlight. So yeah, you need something better than Shane Gostas bear as a partner for Ivan Provorov. And there is nothing on this team currently that is a good fit. And that could negatively impact Provorov, as you've pointed out. So that needs to be addressed. I think it will be. I I can't imagine that when Chuck comes to the deadline or close to the deadline, that he doesn't look to to add that defenseman. If he doesn't, boy, oh boy, are we going to have a field day on this show because that's, that's really sticking your head in the sand at that point. Um, and as far as depth, look, they're not happy with their bottom pair. They're rotating guys in and out. But the reality is Justin Braun, Eric Gustafson, Robert Haig, they're fine. They're fine as five sixes. They're only going to play 16 minutes a night. You know, they're not guys that are going to cost you games. Like you're really, your third pair defensemen are not guys you're going to sit there and be like, oh my God, they're so bad. Oh no, man. Gustafson's had some pretty bad five on five play. He did. But I mean, he'll, yes. he'll be. So, a, he, uh, so. As, a third, as a third pair guy, he's okay. Um, so I mean, so I'm saying like, it's not like they don't, <coughs> excuse me, that their depth is disastrous. These guys are NHL level players that you just can't expect them to do more than what they are. Right. So your middle pairs solid Myers and Sandheim are solid. Provorov. We know he's better when he has a reliable partner on his other side. So if you can do that, if you can get him a reliable partner, and then you have a rotation at the bottom that's Gustafs Bear, Gustafson, Haig, Braun. That's pretty good depth at the position. And to me, that's that's the that's what's that's the change that needs to happen here. And maybe maybe add like they did last year, try and add players who can add a little bit of grit and physicality to the bottom of your lineup. You know, I know Bunneman's played well. But is he the fourth line center you want in the playoffs? Or would you rather have a veteran player who's more physical, more willing to go into the corners and make a hit and dig a puck out and stuff like that? I mean, that's, a, that's, that's the question you have to ask yourself. So I think maybe they add a, a depth forward, but the priority has to be between today, we're recording this on February 4th, between today and the trade deadline, which is two months away, is adding a number two defenseman to play with Provorov. And if they don't do it, 
that's that's a failure uh, in the in the general manager's office. So there's one thing that I guess I'll take a little bit of exception to. I'm sure this is going to come as a shock to you and to many. I don't actually think that Shane Gosses Bear with Ivan Provorov is a bad thing right now. I I don't actually. Th- if they play like they had played prior to the Boston game, I think there is a scenario where if you get that number two defenseman, you have to consider putting that number two defenseman on the second pairing. So the issue that I have is that Travis Sanheim and Phil Myers, independent of one another, I see a lot of promise and I see a lot of things to be encouraged by. I don't see a second pairing that is so unique, dynamic, or elite, or trending in the elite way, or trending in the shutdown way, that they should be left untouched. And I think that that, in a way, is part of the problem. Because if you were to go out and get a guy who could theoretically be your number two defenseman, and let's say that Provorov and Gostisbehere are able to kind of rekindle that magic. They're able to play somewhat solidly together. I think Gostisbehere, for the most part this season, we also have to give him the benefit of the doubt. He had COVID and he's back playing at the NHL level at NHL speed, playing on the top pair on a team that believes they're going to contend for a Stanley Cup. Like tip of the cap. Like Oh, to be young again. Right? Um, So like tip of the cap there. That can't be overstated. That is a very difficult thing to do. You, you, my friend, are doing a remarkable job of staying uh, without passing out, doing the show, recovering from COVID. This dude's out there playing at the NHL level at full game speed with not a lot of time to ramp it back up. Tip of the cap. I think if you're able to go out and get that number two defenseman, you start to then tinker with that guy probably being paired with Phil Myers. And if Travis Sanheim then becomes a guy that you can have as a third pair defenseman, that to me is a more attractive option than saying, let's overload that top pairing, keep Sanheim and Myers together, and then have this weird bunch of misfit toys that you're going to rotate in and out on the third pair. Like, I think this team, their ceiling increases exponentially if Gostas Bear and Provorov are able to play at a solid level. But I it's think an you if. see it's an if it, for us. It is, but you have plenty of time to kind of figure that one out. Like I think regardless, sure, you need to add a high quality defenseman. But I would be willing to say, let's see the next 15, 20 games play out. And if you need to pull the emergency cord going into the postseason and put that number two defenseman up on that top pairing with Ivan Provorov, fine, because that will mean that the experiment didn't work. But to me, the idea of 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 making that top pairing so top heavy, still having that up and down play in your second pairing and having a disaster zone in that third pairing, that to me is not an attractive option. And I don't know what the calculus this front office has done uh, would imply. Like, I don't know if they would consider doing something like that. I don't know if Elaine Vigneault is so, I don't want to say thick headed because there's a negative implication there, but like, I don't know if there's like this inflexibility to, to break up that second pairing if you're able to get a guy who could become, you know, a number two defenseman for this team, or at least somebody who's a top four defenseman. The problem here, and this is one thing that I guess I'll throw back to you. If you look at the standings right now, 
I, I don't know exactly where you're going to get that guy from and probably on a short-term contract. Because again, the expansion draft is a thing that this team is going to have to consider. And I don't see a scenario where this team is going to want to get involved with a long-term deal for a defenseman and then risk losing probably Travis Sanheim. Like, I don't see it. If they don't want to break him up off the second pair now, I don't see what quality player you're going to get that's going to be on a one-year deal that isn't going to cause you potential damage in the expansion uh, draft, assuming, of course, that Seattle decides to take one of those defensemen that you have to expose. Yeah, I mean, I think the what you have to consider, Russ, is they're probably, you're not looking at somebody who's, you're going to bring in here long-term. You're going to think about the long-term um, construction of the team in the summer uh, after the season, right? So what you have to look at <laughs> is probably guys on expiring contracts. Now, there's a lot of guys who are going to be free agents after this season who are defensemen. Um, but a lot of these guys also have significant cap hits. And yep. so therefore, you know, if you're going to chase after a player that's got some money, um, you, you're going to have to find a way to move some money. I mean, yeah, the Flyers have a, a little bit of room, but not a ton. Like I look in, and sit there and say, you know, a veteran guy like, like Mark Stahl, for example, in Detroit. You know, he's 34. He's an, a UFA after the season. But Detroit's he's a five a dumpster point, fire. But he's a $5.7 million cap hit. Yeah. Right? I mean, is that something that you can make work? I don't know. You know, um, it, you know and if you, you go further down the list, you know, you look at a guy like Eric Goodbranson with Ottawa, you know, eh, 29 He's been an up and down defenseman over the years. Not terrible, but not great. But he's a four million dollar cap hit. You know, these are these are the kinds of players that you're that you're looking at. And if you want to go cheaper than that, you know, do you? We just have to pause, though, Anthony. Like, think about the names that you just said. And this is you kind of doing gymnastics, trying to get to it. It kind of speaks to, and I know that you know you don't want to you don't want to go after the front office yet, but like your options here are limited, and unless you're and and by the way, like you don't have a bunch of bad contracts that you could move off of and entice a team with draft picks. Like well, the, the say, most I'll helpful, like no, the, the name that that really sticks out to me, and, and I haven't mentioned yet because. I, I don't know what Edmonton is just yet. And they got off to kind of a slow start, but I think that they should be a better team than they are. And the name that really sticks out to me is Tyson Barry. Tyson okay. Barry is a pretty, pretty good defenseman. Uh, he's a UFA. He's 3.75 million. Um, he would be the perfect fit in my mind. But does Edmonton get back into the mix and become a team that's pushing for the playoffs. If they do, well, that's off the table. If they're they only don't... a point behind, I mean, granted right. the rest, the, the three teams ahead of them in the North division have two games in hand on them, but like, 
I mean, they're a point. They're they're a point behind Winnipeg. They're three points behind Toronto. Now, obviously, things can go can go very differently here, depending on how those top three teams play over the next couple. But like, I see, like, yeah, okay. So there's there's one path. Like, what what contract? Let's back this out. Scott Lawton is a guy I know who has been brought up many times about somebody that this team might not look to hang on to long term. But it's not like Scott Lawton has a ridiculous cap hit either that like moving his money is going to create enough flexibility for you to go out and get like a top tier ish kind of player. So how willing are you GM Anthony Sanfilippo? How willing are you to move on from a guy who might be somebody that you're planning on potentially building into your long-term plan in order to get a defenseman who really is at a number one or a number two. Uh, if I'm moving Lawton, then yeah. I mean, well, if I could get a real number two, yes, I would do it. I, I would do, I would move Lawton. There's, there's no question in my mind because He's his role is one that I feel other players could fill. Whereas it's really hard to get a top pair defenseman. Now I'm not saying Lawton alone gets you that player, but Lawton and a draft pick will get you that player. If that's if that's the deal, if I'm being told, look, if if let's just say it's Tyson Barry, right? If that's what it takes to get him, I make the trade. And I like Scotty. You know, I have a good relationship with him. I I would I would do that deal. So, that's the thing we throw out to the listener. You yeah. know, yeah. Well, how we'll how high of quality do you, are you willing to get rid of? I mean, when you talk about what that does to change the team's potential ceiling, it raises it without a doubt. But you're playing a risky game. And Scott Lawton is a UFA at the end of this year. Michael Roffel is a UFA at the end of this year. Yeah, but Roffel's older, doesn't. Roffel also only has a $1.6 million cap hit. So it's not like you're, again, saving that much. And based on what I just said, like a little bit ago, I can't now go back on the Shane Gossespierre deal, but like you said it before, four and a half million in a flat cap year is not attractive to teams. And he's got two more years beyond this one at that same cap hit. I, I will say I would not be shocked if at some point this team makes the evaluation that Travis Sanheim is a the guy they move. Because he's got that $3.25 million cap hit. He's a restricted free agent at the end of the year. And if you're looking to try to make a real impact, if you're looking to try to raise the ceiling of your team short term, I, I think you're looking at a Sanheim and or a Lawton and you see what you get out of it. And you're probably attaching draft compensation to it. At yeah. least in the case of Lawton, you are with, with Sanheim. You might have to as well. I think people have kind of there there. I've noticed there has been more of a souring on Sanheim this year uh, as opposed to in seasons past. And the RFA uncertainty is a real concern. Well, so you know why there's a souring on Sanheim because he's now been around long enough to sour on him. 
There you Whereas go. I watch his game and I, I see improvement. I see improvement in his game. I like a lot of what, like last night, he was the best defenseman on the team last night. Now, sometimes that's not saying much when everybody else is not playing well. But I thought Travis Sanheim had a pretty strong game last night. Um, and I see more and more of that out of him. I, I, I see why they want to keep Sanheim and Myers together. I think there's a lot of growth with those two. Um, I would be more reluctant to move on from Sanheim than I would be to move on from Lawton, personally. So. I think there also has to be a question about how, how clear of a path does this team want to make for Eager Zamula for next year? That's a possibility, uh, they, too. They, clear, uh, they clearly believe that in terms of physicality, in terms of his frame, he needs to add. But, like, I don't think he's that far off. No, he's got a lot, of, a lot, a, a lot to like about his game. They're going to really watch him with the Phantoms uh, and see how he plays. But I think that they think that he could certainly be in this mix next year, maybe as that, you know, just as a third pair guy. Yeah. And that could improve the third pair. For sure, it could. Yep, because because Braun right. won't because Braun won't be here after this year. Oh, right. Oh, did he sign two years? No, he, he, it's two years, right? Yeah, so he's got okay. he has another one point eight million at the yeah, end of uh, okay. after this year. Yeah, shall be interesting, my friend. Well, hey, by the way, hey, what? I I, I noticed that we had a bunch of new five star reviews. Oh, I wonder why. Now I don't know. If you got to them on episodes with Colby, nope. So maybe you should get to them. I saw at least five that I have not heard said on the program. So here's the truth: I made a plea to the people that if they left a five star review, you would check it and you would see it, and that would just be another way for people to reach out and to tell you that uh, they're thinking of you. And I was very happy to see that there were a number of five-star reviews they came across. So uh, let me see. How far back do we go? I think... Uh, the, the, one, the first one that I go back to... That is I the ninth remember. or the seventh? No, the seventh. Van Horn. I think we read that one. All right, I'll, I'll go there. We'll start there. So Van Horn... Uh, we couldn't S have read it because S the last show I was on was the sixth. Oh, you're right. So yeah. this is, this is uh, somebody who had left a review before. Because it's the uh, fan since Jeremy's uh, eighty foot dagger. Yeah. Most recent shows, perhaps your best ever. Really enjoyed the inside hockey stuff, and your willingness to be forthcoming about Comcast is over the top essential. You can't find this kind of honest, in depth presentation anywhere else. Thank you. No, oh, thank you, Van Horn. Thanks. Then we go two days later. Such a fun podcast for Flyers fans. Love listening to Russ and Anthony. Great hockey and Flyers content, and always fun listening to them bicker like a married couple. Great job covering training camp. By uh, loved it, but now it's buggy. We appreciate that as well. Yeah. Um, we have CPH8, well-rounded Flyers podcast. Ant and Russ know what's up. They are two people who know not just Flyers content, but know how to ask the right questions to the team to have meaningful conversations. Love listening to the podcasts and cannot wait to hear what the new episodes entail for the new season. Keep it up, boys. Listen to these masterpieces and let's go Flyers. Thanks, Thanks for that CPH8. one. CPH8. We had a Lee C five-star review about the opening night podcast about uh, me and Colby. I think I might've read that one on air. We'll go to the next one. Matt R 27 says enjoyed each week. Great variety of guests and a, and astute knowledge from the hosts. All the best to Anthony and hope he is back soon. Thanks. Well, Matt, Matt you got your wish. 
Got your wish. Mr. Paolucci, five-star review, says, the only Flyers podcast. I've been listening to Snow the Goalie for over two years now, and I just want to say this is without a doubt the greatest hockey podcast out there. Fantastic coverage of the team, including insightful interviews from current and ex players. The press row show is great, especially in the playoffs this past season when the banter between Ant and Russ. Best wishes to Ant for a full recovery. We all look forward to having him back covering the team soon. Thanks, Mr. Paolucci. Appreciate that. And then Lee C came back with another five star review. The Lee C five star review. This was another solid podcast. This is on the last one. Topic success were well done. I appreciate the topics regarding the Jake Voracek post game interview, the play of Phil Myers the state of the Flyers injuries, life on the road during COVID-19. Don't break up the Patrick Lindblom Konechny line and the Washington Capitals COVID violation. It was good to hear Colby on the podcast. Continue best wishes and Ant's recovery from COVID. Stay strong and continued success. Sorry, continued great success. Great success. Wow, 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 with your podcast. Thanks, Lee. So, listen, man, you got through it. I'm proud of you. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm proud of you. Appreciate it. So the Flyers are back tomorrow night. Friday. Yes. Yeah. Fri- oh, that's right. Because some people will listen to this on Friday. They're back in town or they're back on the ice Friday night. Uh, we will have coverage of the of the game going on uh, over for Crossing Broad. And I believe that relatively soon you and I will be back at games sitting at separate tables. And uh, we just might have to have, bring back the press row show. I think it might look a little bit. It's going to look, look a little bit different. It's going to feel a little bit different. It'll look different, um, but we'll do it. And it'll be good. Yeah. It'll be nice. The next time, I think I'm going to be able to go go down there for the next set of home games. Well, how about that? So after the um, after the Washington series, because um, they, go, they go to Washington first, right? Yeah. And then they come back um, and play the Devils. So although – I won't be available on the 13th. It is my birthday and uh, Maria has Maria, Maria has plans that night. So you get to see another birthday. Look at you. Yeah. I'm happy for you. I'm proud of you. So you'll be taking that one by yourself. So we used to do this thing when we did the show on 610, but let's do a look at the week ahead. When, when we sit down to record the show next week, how will the flyers have done? Uh, let's start with uh, the flyers are home against the Bruins on Friday night. They are in Washington on Sunday and Tuesday. And I would assume that we'll be back before next Thursday's game at home against the devils. But, and let's, let's extend it out to the four. How do the flyers fare? I'm going to say two, one and one, and we won't be happy about it. Do you think that the same issues that have plagued the team are going to continue to plague them until Couturier comes back? Yes. For do sure. you think Couturier will be back by the 11th or do you think it's going to be like Saturday the 13th? I think the devils, the devil, I don't think he plays in either of the Washington games. Okay. So uh, whether it's the 11th or the 13th, he's going to play one of those games at least, if not both. Yeah. I, I, I don't hate the two one and one. Uh, yeah. I think that, I mean, I think that they're better than the devils. I think they beat the devils, right? They'll beat the so devils. I think they should, they should beat so the caps. At least five, once in Washington. Go five. I think they'll lose the other three. I think they'll lose to Boston. Uh, there are enough concerns. Unless unless this team really does take a lot to heart. I, I don't know. This Boston matchup is not a good one for them right now without Sean Couturier. It's not. And and you said off the top, they are a top heavy team, Boston. 
And when you don't have your ultimate kryptonite for that, it's yeah, that that top line it's, is really it's problematic. Good. And you can't take it, penalties against them. You yep. can't. Their power plays is over 30% right now. That's remarkable. Insane. Yeah. All right. So we'll be back next week. Uh, don't forget to go follow us over on Instagram and Twitter at Snow the Goalie. Of course, Anthony is at Ant San Philly. I'm at Joy on Broad. Of course, we also are over on Facebook.com slash Snow the Goalie. Do us a favor. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Make sure if you're listening on Spotify, you hit the follow button. It'll automatically download the episode of the podcast. Um, make sure you tell other Flyers fans that you know about Snow the Goalie. The listener numbers continue to grow. It's nice. Even though we were off a week ago, it's always fun to go back and take a look at the data and people listening to past episodes this past week since we didn't have a show. Some people were listening to us from a couple of weeks ago, but I've noticed there's been this trend to go back and listen to episodes from the archive, which is kind of cool. Uh, so if you're new to the show or if you were unaware, you can go back and listen to episodes that we did with Bobby Clark, with Ron Hextall, who we didn't even talk about the fact that Ron Hextall is going to get hired as the uh, the Penguins GM. He could. He interviewed. Today. He's going to. Yeah. He will. Who else? Pierre, <laughs> Pierre Maguire. No, uh -huh. not Pierre. Not Pierre. Uh -huh. Oh, let me ask you this really quick before we head out. Mike Tirico on the call. Do you like it? Do you think there's room to grow? Do you want to see them uh, get away from it? Yeah. He didn't excite me. I mean, he was fine. He wasn't terrible. It's not like I said, they're like, oh, I mean, he's a professional. He's been around, right? He, he knows, and he knows the sport. It's not like he doesn't know it. But I, I, it didn't excite me to have him as the, as the broadcaster. I like Forsland better. And they had Forsland do the early game, which, is, which surprised me. Um, he did the, the Detroit-Tampa game. Um, instead, which was a 5.30 start, I believe. Yeah. Um, I, I'd rather Forsland be their primetime guy than Tariko, but um, I, I think he's fine as like the second guy. I wouldn't make Tariko to me is like a, is a, is a big game voice. I like Mike Tariko a lot. I think he does a great job. I think last night there's certainly room to grow. There's certainly room yeah. to, to get better. I, I just love listening to the guy announce sports. Yeah, uh, I mean, but I, mean, I wanted to see if it, if he's got a like, good voice. I, I didn't think he was it, it, he did an exceptional job last night, but I do feel like there's enough polish there that like yeah. it has a big game feel. Forslund's great. I I hate to be the guy, but like Kenny Albert doesn't do it for me, and I don't I don't think he ever will. And that's not to say that he's not good at his job because he obviously is. He gets big gigs announcing multiple sports, but like to me, he feels like the B team guy because he was for so long, you know, behind Doc Emmerich. So Forslund to me, if you're going to make somebody the heir apparent, he's the guy. Yeah. But if Tariko can grow into that role, no, it's an interesting thing. And it's like the number two guy. But then again, who knows if NBC will even have the rights to the NHL after this year, unless you want to go find them on, you know, USA or true TV or, well, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. So for Ant, at and San Philly. I'm Russ at Joy on Broad. Thanks for listening. Check us out. Press Row Show coming back. We've got Snow the Goalie every week from now on, unless one of us ends up in the hospital again. And let me tell you something, it ain't going to be me. So, Anthony, <laughs> you make sure that you take care of yourself, fella. And I will talk to you again next week. And uh, all right, bye, everybody.